Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John Kaplan, here with my great friend and colleague, Johnny McMahon. Cap, Cap, good morning. I think we're... uh... Really, really lucky to have such a special guest on our podcast today. I, I'm, I'm blown away. Me too, buddy. I, <clears throat> I think, you know, we're, you know, we're bringing our listeners a special conversation with a special human being who exemplifies courage, honor, integrity, and an absolute commitment to serve others. And, you know, John, when we started this podcast, we we knew we were going to talk to sales leaders and C-suite executives, but we also wanted to broaden the conversation and be able to speak with individuals outside of the typical business roles and, and hear additional perspectives on topics like leadership, growth, and resilience. Yeah, absolutely, Cap. I mean, whether you're in sales, marketing, or an executive, you're always learning new things from different people you know, in different walks of life. And for me, I always tried to translate those lessons I learned, you know, from other people I met, you know, into my sales approach or interacting with people on my team, which helped me become a better salesperson and also a better leader. So I think it's vitally important to listen to everyone's story. And you never know what you might hear, what nugget you might learn, you know, that can help you in your profession or in your own journey in life. So... For me, Anthony's story is about character and the many character challenges that he and many others faced and continue to face on a daily basis. It's about personal courage. It's about relying on your intuition in chaotic situations, having the mental and moral strength to not only understand, but to face how our emotions of fear, depression, anxiety, or anger, the ones that he carried home left him you know, empty, unable to communicate because those emotions were completely different than the emotions of love and compassion and trust that he needed when he and so many other vets, you know, come home. But Anthony, and, you know, he'll tell his story, but he really dug deep down inside himself because he realized that that is where the power lies. The power is inside of you You know, it must come from you, your understanding and accepting of things for what they are. And that's what Anthony did really good. He accepted the reality and challenging yourself, getting out of your comfort zone with the conviction and tenacity to change, the fortitude to move forward, not backwards, not stagnant, which would have been easy for Anthony to do, but move forward, gain a new perspective on life. So... Cap, you always talk about common and uncommon. Anthony's story is uncommon. Unfortunately, you know, Anthony's struggles are not uncommon. And they're quite common. His struggles are a common representation of the struggles that our veterans face when they come home. 
You know, Anthony, for instance, he needed something for himself and for other vets. And that's why he chose to walk from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, all the way to Santa Monica, California, which is depicted in the movie about him and his buddy Tom that did that walk. It's a movie called Almost Sunrise. And he did it to shine a bright, white, hot spotlight on the moral injury that our vets face. What's moral injury, people ask? Well, it's the psychological, behavioral, and social distress people face from witnessing situations that go against their individual personal values and their moral beliefs. The unfortunate situation is that today, moral injury has no diagnosis or any type of treatment protocol. So Anthony brought this to life in Almost Sunrise and also on this podcast today. It was a powerful movie. It's a powerful podcast. And Anthony is one hell of a personal powerhouse. Cap, you know, what is it that you think you want the listeners to take away? Well, Johnny, you did such a great summary of that. And I'm so psyched that you had, you know, the same takeaways I did. You know, I, I, this one's kind of personal for me. Uh, in 2017, I saw this uh, award-winning documentary again called Almost Sunrise. Um, the story changed my life personally and professionally for many, many different reasons. Um, I think I've shared with you before, Johnny, my, my mother's own story. Uh, she overcame a life of addiction and dedicated her life to serving the men and women like Anthony. Uh, and others in the U.S. military in an effort to combat soldier suicide. And she was actually doing that on military bases overseas at the age of 85 years old was her last assignment. She was 85 years old working with soldiers to help them overseas to help them uh, to combat suicide and meeting, seeing Anthony's story and Tom's story and almost sunrise. It just kind of really brought home that, you know, what my mother was doing really mattered. And uh, so there's so many golden nuggets in this podcast, Johnny, you know, on leadership, accountability, mission, purpose, and overcoming tremendous obstacles. Um, I'm excited to share it with our listeners. Yeah, it's an incredible conversation with Anthony. And I wish we had more time to share because, it, you know, it was a short hour and, you know, it felt like it could have went on. But I hope those of you listening out there will enjoy it as much as Johnny and I did. So... Please take a listen. Today, we are bringing our listeners a special conversation with a gentleman that exemplifies courage, hard work, and absolute, absolute commitment to serving others. Sergeant Anthony Anderson served six years in the infantry, including two tours of duty in Iraq. While there, Anthony participated in led several actions ranging from combat patrols to humanitarian missions. And after leaving the military, um, Anthony completed his education and began working with veterans as a peer mentor, assisting with a host of issues that impact reintegrating into post-service life. He has a huge passion for not only the soldier, but also the soldier's family. Uh, Anthony and his wife, Holly, have two beautiful children. He's also a a uh, business owner of a cool company called uh, Lit Beards that we'll talk a little bit about here. And he's got an incredible story, Johnny. It's, it's uh, part of that story was shared beautifully in the award-winning documentary called Almost Sunrise. 
the film follows two veterans, Anthony and his friend Tom Boss, who embarked on a 2,700-mile walk across America as a way to confront some pretty powerful and personal post-war challenges. The film does a really, really good job of capturing the story of the unseen wounds of war. So, Johnny, it's my great pleasure to introduce you to Anthony Anderson. Hey, Anthony, thanks for joining us. I've read about you. I've listened to your videos online and I watched the great movie, you know, Almost Sunrise. So I'm, I'm super excited to speak with you today. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks very much for the opportunity. You got it, Anthony. So as we're going, uh, as we're going through this, you can. I'm kind of John Cap. This is John Mac. Uh, if if it gets confusing, just say sure. Mac or Cap, whatever's easiest for you. But let's sure. dive in, Anthony. We talk a lot about in our podcast about showing up and doing the work as uh, you know as a leader. I don't think anything exemplifies that more than, you know, a 2,700 mile walk from Wisconsin to Santa Monica. Uh, that makes a great headline, but, um, you know, it's, there's, it's much deeper than that. So we're going to talk a lot more about that today. Why don't we just sure. kind of ease into this conversation and talk a little bit about how did you decide to join the military? Sure. So, um, Service is a big thing in my family. Uh, my dad was a school teacher. My mom uh, worked in a nursing home. Like my grandma was mayor of her town. Um, aunts and uncles were nurses, you know, things like this, like always serving people, recognizing um, the work that we can do to help and support people within our communities is always a big driving uh, lesson for me as I was growing up. And so when I, when I was small, I remember watching uh, the start of the, the Gulf War. Um, I remember seeing the stuff on like CNN and all the, you know, anti-aircraft fire and going and kind of watching this thing unfold in real time. And then I remember the ticker tape parade with uh, General Schwarzkopf and everybody coming back. Like I have vivid memories of this. And so even from a very early age, I had um, a great deal of reverence and respect for the military. Um, and then I think as I grew up, I just found myself gravitating more and more to it. Um, when I was 16, I actually went in to speak to a recruiter. My grandfather, uh, was a Marine and I, I thought like, I'd like to be a Marine. And so I, I went in at the age of 16 because the earliest you can enlist is when you're 17 through something wow. called the delayed entry program. And then you'd go to basic training and then come back and do your senior year of high school and stuff. And I went in to speak to this recruiter. And um, quite frankly, he was a terrible recruiter. He was a terrible salesman. Rather than tell me <laughs> anything that a young 16-year-old who's like motivated and, you know, wide-eyed and just kind of want to go out and maybe have a bit of adventure and do, do good, it just was like, we're going to grind you into the dirt and, you know, like, it's just, we're going to break in stuff. And so I was like, well, maybe I'm not quite grown up enough for it. That said, when I uh, started my, when I started college, my first week of college, the nine 11 attacks happened. Mm. And so that I think kind of brought back into focus for me. Um, yeah, this is something you've always thought about. And now there's kind of a, um, 
a new drive to kind of go back that way. So I completed my freshman year of college and then began speaking to a recruiter and decided like, yeah, this is definitely what I'm going to do. Um, so again, like basically from the very beginning service, always being a big deal to me. Um, and then of course, like this gigantic event that kind of brought that back to the forefront of like, this is actually a really good time to do this. This motivates you. You see a purpose behind it. Um, if now, you know, now more than ever is the time to do it. Um, so when it came to what I was going to do, I always, when I pictured like what military service was, I always thought about the infantry. I thought about kind of the combat element, not so much, you know, um, being a mechanic or working in an office type job of the military. It was big, heavy pack, rifle, marching, shooting, fighting, you know, things of that nature. So you go through the normal process and, you know, take the tests and talk to recruiters and do whatever. And ultimately I decided I wanted to be in the infantry. Um, and my family was very supportive of me joining the military. They wanted me to try to find a job within the military that, I could use when I like transitioned out of the military, but really, you know, kind of as like a young, stubborn, focused uh, young man, I was like, no, the infantry is what I want to do. And so ultimately that's what I did. Now you're in, in the beginning, one of the things I found amazing, I don't think this came out in the documentary. I think I read this somewhere is that you go, go to basic training. You're, you're, you're in and your unit doesn't get deployed but you volunteer to go in another unit and then yeah. later on something happens again and you sign up to go to Iraq again. Can you, we're leading into this kind of duty, this duty sure. that you were experienced. Could you talk a little bit about that? I find it amazing. Sure. So the, the values of the army, they kind of, they kind of spell out a version of leadership, right? Loyalty, duty, respect, selfless, uh, selfless service, honor, integrity, and personal courage. And so they really, you know, you go through lessons on what all these things are. And so all through the course, like when you um, go to basic training, you're assigned what they call a battle buddy. So essentially it's um, somebody who keeps you accountable. Um, so you can't just kind of learn to be an individual, even in, even your day to day, it's team. So if that team is as small as one other person, you're always doing this. I was in the reserves. I was in the guard. So I wasn't a regular everyday active duty soldier like my buddy Tom was. Um, Tom Foss, who we'll talk about later with Almost Sunrise. So as a reservist, you do the one week in a month, two weeks a year type thing. And so as I, um, I graduated from basic training in June, June 6th of 2003, the anniversary of D-Day. And then the next year, as I was finishing my two-week you know, one week in a month, two weeks a year, as I was finishing mm -hmm. my two weeks a year, they said to me, you've been involuntarily mobilized. And what that means is a unit somewhere is deploying and they don't have enough people, enough qualified people. So you have been selected to go to fill a vacancy um, and you're going to leave in 30 days. Wow. Okay. So on my way home, um, I didn't, tell my, you know, my family and stuff like that. But one of the people that I called was my battle buddy from basic training who also lived in Wisconsin just by coincidence. And um, I'm talking to him and he's saying, yeah, I've, I've just started college and my girlfriend and I moved into our home and, you know, everything is going really well for me. And I'm like, oh, that's fantastic. 
I hang up the phone with him. I get a call back from my unit. Have you told anybody that you're deploying yet? And I was like, not too many people, but a couple why. And they're like, well, actually there was a, a clerical error. Um, we didn't realize what rank you are. We're, you actually have too much rank. We're not going to send you. We're going to send somebody else. So you don't have to go anymore. So I hung up the phone, immediately get a call from my battle buddy. Hey, they've taken me now in your place. Oh my gosh. And wow. so I was like, I was like, oh, Mike, okay, look, um, I don't think you should do this on your own. Like, let me see what I can figure out. Um, I'll, I'll go with you. Just, just give me a minute. And so I hang up the phone with him. I call my unit back and I was like, look, instead of taking me, now you're taking my battle buddy. Um, I want to volunteer because I don't think he should have to go by himself. We did basic together. Let's do this together too. So they, I remember they asked me, are you sure you want to do this? And I said, yeah, I'm sure. Um, I had already kind of started to prepare myself, you know, as much as you can in those first hours or so. Mm. So they said, okay, no problem. They hung up the phone. A couple of minutes later, my battle buddy calls me. You're never going to believe this. Somebody volunteered. I don't have wow. to go anymore. Oh and my that was God. me. <laughs> so it dropped bumps, him out. Man. So it dropped him out and it put me in. Um, and I was like, okay, well, this is what's happening. So it was like me and 12 other individual uh, soldiers from Wisconsin went and filled um, vacancies with a, a, Louisiana, um, a deploying brigade from Louisiana. So I then went to um, Fort Hood, Texas, and I did all of my pre-deployment mobilization. You get your shots, you get, you know, new uniforms for, you know, being over in Iraq, et cetera, et cetera. And then I met that unit um, a few days before we flew to Kuwait. Um, they had been deployed, uh, they had been training together for like six months. So I didn't really have relationships or rapport or anything like that. I just kind of showed up and I'm like, here's my paperwork. I'm with you guys. And then shortly thereafter, we went to Kuwait. Um, acclimated for three weeks and then convoyed up to Baghdad and had that deployment. When I came back, um, you had kind of alluded to, I also then volunteered the second time. So yeah, we can get into the, uh, we can get into the, what happened in in between the deployments. But for the second time, some friends and I in my unit in Wisconsin, we kind of made this pact. If two or three of us were involuntarily mobilized, the balance of us would volunteer. There's about seven of us. And so, um, sure enough, you know, the war's still going on. It's very early now, 2007. The first deployment was 04 to 05. Now we're at 2007. And um, a couple of guys get involuntarily mobilized. So I volunteer. One of my buddies couldn't do it. His dad had just passed away. Another guy was about to get married. Like there were reasons why people couldn't do it. So these two or three guys that were involuntarily mobilized and then I volunteered and we go to get, you know, squared away to deploy and every one of them are disqualified. I am qualified. So I go again um, by myself and I'm taken as an individual and placed with a deploying unit from Wisconsin um, a couple months later, and then, you know, kind of same song and dance, go through the what pre-mobilization, story, the pre-deployment, man. and then go. What a freaking story. What about up and down emotions? And then <laughs> though you were a man of integrity, you maybe some of those guys, everything was for real, but you were, you were a man of integrity throughout the whole thing. Well, the biggest difference between both of those was in the first instance, I told, I was engaged 
but I told my soon to be wife. So my wife and I got married um, shortly before my first deployment um, on an expedited thing, right? Tuesday night by a judge. Um, but I told her I was volunteering the second time I did not tell her I was volunteering. I kind of allowed her to believe that I had been selected. I waited until I was, um, safely in Iraq to let her know that I had, uh, I had volunteered. Safely in Iraq. If that makes any sense, safely in Iraq. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What are your, what are your big takeaways from your experience? I want to talk to you. Not, not so much the, um, the trauma and personal things that you experienced. Um, if you were talking to somebody that was, you know, thinking about the military or what did you learn that made you a better individual? Um, not that your post hasn't made you a better individual, but things of service, things of discipline and preparation, like, it already sounds like your commitment to others and duty is off the charts. What else did you take away from those experiences? Yeah. I mean, I wish we had, you know, several hours to kind of go over this, but when I went the first time I was 21 years old, um, I turned 22 when I was in Iraq. When I went the second time I was 24, I turned 25 while I was in Iraq. So I was a pretty young man. Um, I think some of the things that I took away Certainly in the first time, much earlier in the war with a different kind of mission, how much chaos is surrounding you and how little control you have over these things, but how ultimately like you have to make decisions. Like you have to be willing in those moments to do it because otherwise like you can't be stagnant. Um, You have to go with the flow and you have to be flexible and you have to, you know, be agile and adjust, but you have to make decisions. you can't wait always for somebody else because they may be like processing, but everything around you is very dynamic. So you have to be willing to say like, this is what we're doing. We're moving in this direction. And then ultimately realize I can always pivot if I need to, but I can't stay where I am. I think some other things that I um, learned when I, when I was deployed, there is this big need, I think for people to, be understood, but at the same time, like the flip side of that same coin is to truly not be misunderstood. And so I saw a lot of people that were going through traumatic events with me that were not willing to speak about what it was that was happening. And I don't know if it's because they were still processing it or if they just wanted to kind of like put up a front. And so what I mean is, you're young and you see a roadside bomb go off on a vehicle full of people that you know, Mm. but you can't talk about being afraid or what that was. And so I think I learned very early that people want to be understood in one way and seen in one light, but they also don't want to let on what actually allows people to get to know them. Like in that moment, I was terrified or in that moment, I didn't know what to feel. And so I think I learned pretty quickly that it was important to be able to figure out and understand what it was I was doing. Um, Because when I came home the first time, I didn't really know how to process that. But the second time I was like, I'm going to go speak to somebody, even if I feel fine, because Mm -hmm. now I've recognized the need to do this. I also saw just like economically, 
um, what a tremendous waste of like resources you would see um, just because people, it was like throwing so much away. It was like, Oh, here's, we're going to go do this now. And there was so much time and so much energy and so much effort where people didn't know what the purpose was that they were doing because you'd get like mission creep, like this is what we're doing. And then it would change, you know, we're winning hearts and minds. We're finding uh, weapons of mass destruction. And then we're doing this and we're doing this. And so it was very hard to find purpose. And so I recognized too, that one thing that motivates me is purposeful work, understanding uh, the mission and the values and like the why behind things, not just what and how we do it. I also, I think just to kind of um, tie a bow around it, I think I also kind of discovered, boy, how many people were affected by what was happening that were actually living the life, but whose decisions were being made by the opinions of others that weren't, that had no vested interest and how much resentment it was building up in people like of my generation, because they were going and doing these things and they would come back and they would hear everyone's opinions as to what we were doing. But those people were totally disconnected from it. Yeah. So I found that it was very important to be able to communicate and tell your story because otherwise other people's opinions will overtake it. Can I go back and touch on a couple of things that you said, Anthony? Yeah. So please. one on the chaos thing and, and you have to make decisions and you've never seen this type of chaos before in your life. And you have to instinctively almost know what to do. So did you feel like, Hey, I'm starting to learn to trust my intuition to make these decisions? What were you learning about yourself that allowed yeah. you to trust yourself in this yeah. situation? I think you learn to trust those people that are around you because like we all wear the same patch, right? So you got the American flag patch and then you've got your unit patch. And even when you're not necessarily like, you don't always like one another, right? It's just like when you're working with somebody, it's like you're collegial and stuff, but maybe you're just personality wise, you don't vibe or whatever, but, you're on the same. but you know, but you know that when things go sideways, mm-hmm. that person will have my back and I will have theirs. And it's not just because we wear the same patches on our, you know, on our sleeves. It's because we're doing this together and it's my responsibility to take care of you. And it's your responsibility to take care of me. And I think what I ended up really trying to do in those moments where it was very chaotic was trust that those people would remember, like they were responsible for me and they would trust that I was responsible for them and that we would take care of one another. Um, that my own self-interest was really kind of rooted in making sure that everybody else was okay. I know that there's always this, you know, this kind of perception of like mom, dad, apple pie, when you're deployed, it comes down to, I am responsible for the people around me and they are responsible for me. And so the chaos that surrounds you when it drives you to make decisions, it's really like, what is the best decision for those people around me? Because I want them to feel comfortable making the best decision for me too. It's mission focused, but we all recognize that we need each other to accomplish the mission. So Anthony, the other thing I wanted to touch on is, and I'm paraphrasing here, what you might've said is if you don't have a clear cut mission 
for what you're doing and why you're doing what you're doing, then you don't have this purpose. So on one hand, you have this, you know, it's not reality of, you know, pe- people want to believe America, mom, apple pie, all sure. that type of stuff. And then you're just trying to stay alive and protect the backs of your teammates in this chaotic situation. So there had to be this conflict between this is what I thought I bought into, but this is what I really bought into. And now I got to decide that I'm going to buy into this chaotic situation just to stay alive. Right. Could you talk a little bit about that conflict that had to happen in yourself? Sure. And I think that that's ultimately then what we kind of discover and discuss within um, almost sunrise, right. This kind of, this kind of conflict of what you're being told and what you're supposed to act on, but then ultimately like what you're observing and what you're feeling. And so some of the chaos of war is not just what's happening outside. It's what's happening, you know, in your heart and in your mind. And so all of these things where the military, it's all mission focused and, you know, it's value driven. It's like, here's the values that make you who you are. And we believe what we believe together. And as a result of that, we can push through and accomplish these missions. But again, like when the mission creep sets in and all of a sudden you keep having to change one degree here, two degrees here, three degrees here, where you started and where you are, it's very, it's, it's, hard it's hard to reconcile within you know within your own mind and then you begin to think like i'm away from my friends i'm away from my family i'm away from everything that's familiar to me and i can't tell you why but i'm having to do all these different things and i might die and i might have somebody that you know i'm responsible for get hurt or killed i don't even know what it is i'm doing but i have to keep going you know through the motions in the documentary One of um, Tom's friends, Emmett, he talks about how generally wars, you know, have been contextualized in the United States through the lens of World War II and how there's this bad guy and we're going to go, you know, free, you know, the oppressed and we're going to do these things and over and over. But then when you actually start going into and you're one of the actors within it, you start to see these things that are not aligned with that. And so that creates this conflict within you. Um, So the mission driven and purpose driven and why driven stuff, it's just when you're a young man and you're kind of finding yourself in these things or a young woman and you're finding yourself in these things, you can't compare them to anything because war has no peer. So I've used the example in the past on like the first time you break up with a girl or a significant other, you feel like the entire world is coming, you know, down on you and you'll never recover. And then you get into another relationship and that one ends and you start to learn how to cope and deal with and stuff like that. Well, in war, there's nothing that compares to it. So when you're trying to figure out, you know, how to navigate through that chaos, there's not a lot to fall back on with comparables to say like, oh, in this situation, I behaved like this or I coped like this. You just find yourself in a completely new uncharted set of territories every day. Right. And what, what really hit home for me in the movie, and it makes so much sense, but, you know, as a soldier, you know, they tell you to consider yourself already dead. So there's no room for certain emotions, no room for compassion, empathy, yep. trust of even the civilians, because there's enemies all around you. So how can you have empathy and trust for 
for basically the enemy. So you're basically learning to turn these basic human emotions off. But then when you come home, those are the emotions that we need when we're around family and friends. We need compassion and empathy and trust. So it was a giant struggle for you when you came home to try to turn those emotions back on. And in the movie, I think you felt, and I'm, and you got to you know tell me if I'm wrong here. I think that deep down you knew that you had to face yourself and learn how to turn those emotions back on. So it's where you got this idea to walk, you know, with Tom from Milwaukee to Santa Monica. Can you, can you walk the listeners a little bit through that? that might yeah. Be so I, yeah. no, no, no. That's so the emotions that serve you well here are not necessarily the emotions or the mentalities that are going to serve you well when you're serving in combat. I mean, yes, you have love and empathy and compassion and, consideration and all these different things, but usually it's reserved for those people that you're serving with. It's impossible, especially like, you know, it's impossible for me when I was out on missions to see some of like the kids and stuff like that and not feel compassion for them. Um, Of course I did. You know, it's not like, it's not like I found the people, the civilians in Iraq to be something different than I was. And quite frankly, I saw pretty quickly that they wanted the same thing, like the same things that I wanted to be happy, to be healthy. And that those people wanted the same things for their children to be able to be educated. They wanted jobs. They wanted prosperity. They wanted all of the things that we want here. They were just caught up in this complete and total mess. But after a while, when you're going through these, you know, areas and, you're getting blown up, you know, or you're hearing about people that, you know, driving down the road and, you know, somebody set a bomb off on them. You lose some of that consideration for humanity and it becomes more about surviving. And Mm -hmm. so you start looking at everybody as a threat. You start looking at everybody as a bad actor instead of giving people the benefit of the doubt, because I mean, it's literally one second they're smiling and waving the next minute, somebody's pressing, you know, a button and blowing you up. So those things that make you a good neighbor, a good friend, a good uh, coworker, things like this, they, they shift when you're over, you know, in those situations. And then what you ultimately discover is like you survived and you survived by being, you know, um, more critical of people. You survived by maybe having a different edge to you. You survived by being more suspect of people's um, motivations because it helped keep you and those you're responsible for alive. And then that becomes a new default. And that becomes a new lens with which you look at the world through. And when you come back, it's not as easy. And people, I think, feel like, oh, well, you lived in this community for 20 years and you behaved this way. So 20 you know, to one, um, you should be very easy to then transition back to what you did for 20 years as opposed to one year. That one year has no peer. That mm-hmm. one year is you know, not comparable to any of the 20. So it's very difficult then to find yourself willing and able to transition back. The hard part, truly is being able to communicate that you don't know how when everybody around you is talking about how 
proud they are of you and how grateful they are for you. And you don't feel pride necessarily. And you don't feel gratitude. You feel confused and you feel like you're still trying to figure out what everything is. And so instead of accepting everything, it's kind of like smiles and, you know, that kind of North South, like, Oh, you're welcome. But I don't know what it is. I'm saying you're welcome for, was it my time? Was it my sacrifice? Is it the memories I carry forever? Like, what am I, what am I doing, you know, in those relation, those relational moments? So, yeah, I mean, John, it's tough when you're young. Um, I mean, it's tough when you're old to go through these things and then come back to a community that wants to embrace you and say, thank you. But you don't even know if they really understand what it is they're thanking you for. And you don't even know if you can define what it is you did, because again, the mission and the purpose changed so many times. You can't even say, yes, this is what I did. Yeah. And you feel probably empty inside, but you decided in the movie, you decided, I think I got to face myself. I don't know if that was explicit, but it was deep down. I think you knew, like, I got to face myself and I got to figure a way like out of Tom and I, Right. Tom and I spent a lot of time talking about how like, man, I'd like to just get in the car and leave, you know, Hey man, if I could just go right now, I'd go. Right. And so I think in a lot of those moments, like I was segregating you mean myself like isolation. from the rest of the world. You mean like, yeah. Away. yeah. Yeah. Like I just get in the car. I just leave. I just go. Yeah. Maybe I'll come back in a month. I don't know. I would just like to get away. Or one common refrain that you hear from veterans a lot is, um, man, I wish I could just go back. Man, it'd be so much easier if I could if I could just go back. Things made sense. They weren't safe. They weren't easy, but they made sense. I think for me, the tipping point was I turned 30. <laughs> and I remember sitting in my basement thinking, wow, I turned 30 tomorrow. What am I going to do? I don't want my 30s to feel like my 20s, which were all about being deployed and dealing with the fallout of it. I don't want... Um, I had a child then. I didn't have a, a kid when I deployed. I don't want to just always be carrying this baggage with me. I have, you know, relationships that matter to me and responsibilities that I have to that I have to hit. So I don't know for sure what I knew I needed to like face myself. I knew I needed to do something dramatically different. Okay. Yeah. Or it was, or it was just going to be more of the same. It's kind of like when you're like, I'm 90 degree in this, you know, it's not about going back. It's just about like a dramatic shift. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how I was going to do it. I didn't know if it would work. I didn't know if it ended at a certain point and I could like check a box and say, I've achieved it. I just knew that I couldn't keep doing what I was doing. So then you, you um, decide to go on a, go on a walk. You want to. So yeah, before you so go there, was, before sorry, you go John, to the walk, yeah, sorry, before yeah. you go for the walk, I want to, one of the things that struck me for the first time, I heard this principle called the moral injury. Yes. Where there's a lot of information out there about PTSD. Um, yep. It's even, it's even uh, 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 goes outside of military. There's, you know, people sure. experience PTSD in a number of dis- different situations, but the documentary excuse me, the documentary helped me, uh, it brought a phrase to me called moral injury. Could you kind of talk about the difference between the two or the similarities or what they mean? Sure. Um, so post-traumatic stress 
has been around, you know, within the context of the military has been around forever. It's the names have evolved, right? Soldier's heart, battle fatigue, um, shell shock. Like there's always been different ways of defining it, but you know, it's been more recently within the last several decades that it was kind of defined as post-traumatic stress disorder when it was kind of given this clinical definition to me, post-traumatic stress disorder is really just you processing trauma it's like a normal reaction to an extraordinary set of circumstances. And very much to your point, post-traumatic stress is not reserved for combat veterans. If you are in a traumatic relationship, when you get out of it, you can deal with post-traumatic stress. If you're standing you know, at a bus stop and you witness a car accident and people get hurt and stuff, you can go through post-traumatic stress. Again, it's the processing of trauma. Moral injury is... When you find yourself in positions where you are doing or behaving or are a part of something that goes against like your moral compass. And so the, the idea of moral injury, um, it doesn't always mean, you know, because of killing somebody or, or anything like that. It can be witnessing something and not taking action to like help somebody when you know that's the right thing to do um, because it would go against, you know kind of the current of what's happening around you or other decision makers around you. Um, And then you carry, you know, you carry these burdens. So it's, it's kind of like a different type of trauma that, you know, post-traumatic stress, they talk about, you can go and you can talk to a clinician or in some cases people are put on certain types of medication. um, Whereas moral injury is something that, you know, can't be medicated away. It's, it's something to where, it is a part of you. It's who you are. It's that moral compass. This is something that within the film, then we discuss the way in the way in which you address it is through forgiveness, um, forgiving yourself, forgiving others. In some cases where you see in the film, you know, Tom forgiving God for, you know, the trauma. Um, so I think, I hope that that kind of explains a bit of the Thank difference. Um, and it also, one of the primary questions we get about moral injury and why we don't hear about it more, um, it would call into question the morality of war. And that is not something that a lot of people have a big stomach or appetite uh, to discuss, especially, you know, at a government level. Um, So when you talk about these things, you know, that moral injury is about people, um, you know, if you start talking about the morality of war, you know, we're opening up a completely different can of worms. Right. Mm. Right. So, so Johnny, you were going to talk about the, uh, you were going to talk about the specifics of the walk. Please take us on that journey. Yeah. So Anthony, in the movie, you and Tom decided we want to, I think it was said, we want to get to a point where we can turn around. And in order to do that, you know, we want to, we're going to walk from Milwaukee, Wisconsin to Santa Monica, California. Yeah. And hope that this could be the, the you know, a therapy that, you know, might help us. Or, and maybe I'm saying that the wrong way, but I just, could you just walk the listeners through that? Sure. So I think in order to kind of understand it, you have to understand like how it happened. It happened again with Tom and I, Tom and I didn't serve together. Tom and I met one another in Milwaukee, um, serving veterans, becoming peer mentors to veterans. 
And even though we were doing good in the community, you know, we weren't really addressing kind of our own issues. We would talk about them amongst ourselves, but we wouldn't really talk about them at large. Um, and so one day Tom called me and asked me if I had a rucksack he could borrow. And I asked him why. And he said that he had never really taken the time to address his own issues. And he had some friends that he had served with in California. And he was thinking about walking from Milwaukee um, out there to see them. And I was like, dude, I'm in the same boat. You know, I never really took yeah. any time either. Um, what if I come with you? And it quickly then snowballed into like, well, if we're going to do this, then like, let's, let's really do this, you know, like let's try to raise awareness of what it is that's happening to us and, you know, the veteran community and those families, let's try to raise awareness of, you know, who's doing what to try to address it. Let's try to help one another, you know, as friends and peers. Um, and let's try to, you know, raise money to help, um, you know, nonprofit that can help veterans and their families seek the peace that they're looking for. And so we really started to kind of in earnest plan it. And then it was like, well, we're going to need a lot of stuff. So of course we built a website and social media, and this is in the early moments of like Instagram, like we were trying to figure out, do we want to use Instagram or do we want to use this? You know, it was all these different things. So yeah. building these things out and it was very much grassroots. And what we found that was kind of frustrating was a lot of the people that we were asking for help from like the business community, it wasn't that they were unwilling. It was like, oh, well, we've, we've actually done all of our, all of our charitable giving for the year thus far. Like maybe you can come back next year and we're like, well, next year it'll be done. Um, and so a lot of the support that we found came from the veteran community. And certainly there were, there were businesses that helped us and donated, but, uh, quite frankly, the shoes, the bags, um, you know, all of the things that we needed to help carry us, um, you know, to the finish line, we were getting from support from veterans, other veterans and their families. Um, so we planned it ourselves and then put it out there and it, generated a bit of a following. And then, um, of course, this documentary film crew from New York heard about what it was we were doing and reached out. And um, I mean, that changed the tides of everything ultimately as to how we experienced what we were going through, but then ultimately how we memorialized what it was we were doing. Right. And for a lot of listeners, um, you know, like 20 veterans, you know, die a day and I think the fact in the movie was that twice as many die once they come home versus in, in war. Isn't that right? Anthony? So it was a big thing that we discussed was the veteran suicide rate, which is, you know, it's been shifting for years, right? 18, 20, 22, you know, it, it's always kind of moving, but these are kind of like the declared known numbers. What, what we had end up seeing a lot was um, just a lot of self-destruction. Um, a lot of, um, substance kind of abuse, a lot of, um, people's relationships disintegrating, um, a lot of people just kind of losing themselves and ultimately then not counted as a casualty of the war because they didn't, you know, die, you know, overseas, but they came home and their lives just got away from them. And some of them, you know, committed suicide and some of them just shell up, hold up and just kind of, the years go by and they're never actually able to kind of get beyond it. And so Tom and I 
in our work in the veteran community, we were really embraced by the Vietnam veteran community who did not want to see the same sort of future for Tom and I and the Iraq and Afghanistan veterans as their future, which I don't mean to put into the context of like coming home and people being poor, you know, treating them poorly, but more just like the loss of relationships, the loss of friends, the loss of self, the loss of a future, because, you know, that war is a watershed moment then that they could never kind of live or get beyond. And in the movie, it seemed to me like one, one, there were many powerful moments, but one pretty powerful moment, at least it struck me as powerful, is when you're on the Indian reservation and you met with like the Indian chief. And yeah, so that was with Wolf Walker. Yep. So we were in. um, That That was powerful. Sure. Yeah. We were in the Garden of the Gods um, by Colorado Springs. And so how we got linked up with Wolf Walker was the documentary crew sometimes would advance, you know, ahead of us to kind of see what the, you know, what was there. And um, they went to um, a conference for an organization called TAPS and TAPS helps um, basically the survivors of veteran suicide. And this native American community um, heard about Tom and I, and they were like, when they come through, we want to meet them. And one person in particular Wolf Walker um, wanted to meet with Tom and I. So when we met him in Garden of the Gods, this was literally our first meeting with him. We knew that we were going to meet him and we knew that he wanted to talk with us. But um, they kind of told us, like, he's going to be in, you know, regalia. He's going to be dressed, you know, traditionally. um, And this is kind of his this is kind of his role within, you know, the community. And so we go and we find this spot and we begin talking. And it's interesting because as Wolf Walker is speaking with us, one of the first things that he, one of the first topics that he broaches is one that you don't really ever like lead with, which is like, what's the worst thing that you experienced? Mm -hmm. And so both Tom and I have to kind of speak about these things. Um, and then we listen to, you know, Wolf Walker's kind of interpretation of what those moments meant in that moment, as well as the future and kind of where we are and how we need to work beyond the trauma and how we can do it. One of the interesting elements of meeting him was he was able to like contextualize for us how the native Americans, you know, historically, um, chose their warriors and welcomed their warriors home. And that whether it was their biological children or not, they treated every one of them as though they were their own blood and how maybe they gave them space in order to deal with the traumas of the things, you know, that they had seen and done. And it was very interesting to see how those communities took ownership over every decision to go to war because of the incredible gravity that that decision carried, but then also the incredible amount of responsibility that those communities took in welcoming them back and transitioning mm. them back into the tribe. Um, so meeting that. him. Yes. And so meeting him certainly brought us into, um, gave us new lessons to consider, you know, as we were trying to figure out where we were going. 
he seemed like a young man, but he seemed the way he spoke was a, as a very, very experienced individual. Oh yeah. He was a good dude. Um, very compassionate, very open, very honest. Um, that the entire community was incredibly welcoming. Um, it's, they are, he in particular, but they have a, like a special place for me. So it's good. So, so Anthony, what was interesting for me is the, the differences in, um, yours and Tom's, uh, really stories. And we won't, uh, we won't have you speak for Tom's, but the, just the differences, like, I think when I first looked at it, you were talking about isolation and it looked like you were going to get on a walk to go away and to just, to just get away. But I actually think it's, and, and you might've said this somewhere that I might've read that, but you, it saved you because it actually, it actually had you plug into community. You, you yeah. didn't really guys get away because people started following you. Uh, talk about some of the experiences you had where people would just, uh, I think one of the Vietnam vets parked uh, you know, a mile ahead of you yeah. and gave you 20 bucks and you don't know who yeah. you're encountering or, and that's kind of hard for you guys because you're, yeah. you know, you've, you've spent a lot of time in isolation since you got back and just trying to be yeah. away and you actually became a part of the community walking. Right. Yeah. So um, to that point, many people were like, wow, it must be really nice to kind of like unplug and disconnect. And I had said like, no, I think actually what we were doing was kind of plugging back in and reconnecting yeah. for the first time in years because we were getting out of our basements. We were getting out of our heads. We were getting out of these things and we were truly back out with people um, and putting ourselves back out there and being willing to share our stories as well as hear other people's stories and see that, you know, our experiences were unique, but our, you know, veteran experience like this has been playing out for many years. So you, if you want to see your future, just go talk to somebody who, you know, was a veteran and then has lived 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, mm -hmm. 40 years beyond you. Like, here's exactly what's going to happen now with respect to um, people that we met along the way. The example that you just gave was probably one of the most pivotal moments for me on the walk. And then I think one of the most consequential moments probably in my entire life, which was um, walking on this highway out. It's a nondescript road, you know, county highway in Nebraska. And it wasn't a veteran that pulled over. This car pulls over. Oh, yeah. I don't know. He's a quarter mile, half a mile ahead. And that's always a, a like a very troubling thing because you don't know, is this person going to rob you? Like, what is what's their motivation? And so as Tom and I come up, he pops out of the car and he's like, are you guys those veterans walking to California? And we're like, yeah. And he's like, well, my brother died in Vietnam. Um, and so this is 2013. So, you know, you got to think like his brother's probably died 40 years earlier. Mm -hmm. My brother died in Vietnam. Um, I don't really have a lot, but I've got 20 bucks. And I want to give it to you. And if you want to put it towards, you know, your mission for raising money or you want to buy Gatorades or socks or whatever, this is just how I can help you. And so, you know, we talked with them for a couple of minutes and then Tom and I still had like 18 miles to walk for that day. And I was really kind of reflecting on what he said, that he didn't identify himself as a veteran, but his brother and that his brother's death was impacting him still so much to this day 
that he sought out two bearded idiots on the side of the highway to give them 20 bucks because that's what he could do, you know, to help. And I thought, wow. So he didn't identify himself as a veteran or ever having set foot, you know, in Vietnam, but that war is still impacting him to this day. I actually went to war. How long is this going to impact me? And then what am I going to do with it? And I started like all the dominoes started to kind of like tumble where it was like, so I had this experience and now I'm going to carry this with me. And then I'm going to teach some of these lessons that I learned for better or worse to my daughter. And then my daughter is going to teach her children. And then pretty soon there's going to be generations of my family that have never served in the military, certainly aren't going to go, you know, to Iraq and aren't going to meet me because I'll be dead and gone. But the lessons that they're being taught by their mom and dad will be lessons that were taught by, you know, the generation before and the generation before, and they'll be rooted in my experience in Iraq. They will be the lessons about duty, selflessness, trauma, anger, frustration, whatever it is. And so it very quickly kind of recalibrated for me the perspectives and like decisions that I was carrying and the perspectives that I had, how far reaching they were going to be for the rest of my life. And it was pretty damn important that I make uh, some decisions as to like what I wanted those perspectives and those lessons to be for those around me, because those lessons were going to endure and they were going to have legs that wars end when peace treaties are signed, but wars don't end in you. And so it just becomes a choice then in that moment, like, how do I want to carry this on? And so those moments where they're so organic, I mean, it's just somebody that you met and all of a sudden you strike up a conversation and then it completely changes um, your perspective. I said many times, um, I always screw this up. I really need to Google the actual saying, but it's like, if you put a hundred monkeys in a room with typewriters, eventually you get Shakespeare <laughs> instead of me being like the monkey with the typewriter. And eventually 40 years down the line, I'll, you know, type out to be or not to be, I went directly to Shakespeare and I got the lesson right away. And so I feel very fortunate that I got it when I was 30, as opposed from experts that have lived the life, as opposed to finally figuring it out 30 or 40 years later. Johnny, how many, uh, how many uh, business leaders you think are going to contact us trying to get in touch with Anthony? There's <laughs> <laughs> no doubt, Anthony. As long as they do what we want, I want to transition now. I mean, the whole reason, yeah. one of the main reasons that you did the walk was, again, to raise awareness for vets. And I think I'd like to transition the conversation there and talk a little bit about how you feel about that, Anthony, and ways in sure. which some of our listeners can go and help you know, raise the awareness for vets? Sure. So I think, yes, one of the elements that, or one of the three reasons why Tom and I did the walk was to raise awareness of the issues impacting veterans and their families. I think it's very appropriate and very, um, well, how would I say this? Very appropriate and certainly like uh, very motivating to know that so many people want to support veterans, but I think very often their families are overlooked. Um, veterans are the ones that are the war fighters were viewed as the ones that went and did all the sacrificing and saw, you know, whatever did whatever. 
But the wives and the husbands and the kids and the moms and the dads and the brothers and the sisters that stayed back, I mean, they dealt with a lot of trauma and a lot of uncertainty and, you know, all of the times that they don't turn on the TV because they don't want to watch the news and see what kind of nonsense is happening where their, their loved one is. So I feel like it's certainly very appropriate that there's a lot of infrastructure and good people that want to do good for the veterans. But I think ultimately it's very important that people not overlook um, the spouses and the children. And there are a number of resources out there um, both from community-based agencies, uh, from community-based agencies all the way up through kind of like government, you know, through the VA and stuff. For me, there's a couple things that I would suggest. One, if you're a business leader, there are programs uh, like American Corporate Partners where you can volunteer to mentor, coach, and help professionally develop veterans that are trying to get themselves into the workforce. Now, sometimes it might be um, specifically within that field, and it might also just be, hey, I'm trying to develop a new skill. I'm currently employed in this way, but I'm interested in kind of transitioning my skill set. You work in this field. Can you kind of help me? And so American Corporate Partners is a great way to do it. So if you're a veteran and you want to, if you're a veteran and you're in business and you want to mentor and coach other veterans trying to figure it out, great. If you're not, that's cool too. They've got opportunities for you to do that. So if you're a professional and you've, you know, are interested in it, check them out, ACP, so American Corporate Partners. If you're somebody who's looking for a way to help another veteran who might be dealing with trauma, stress, anxiety, you know, there, there are a lot of good things like Project Welcome Home Troops, which you see um, in the film. They deal more with mindfulness and meditation and trying to equip you with the tools that you can have within yourself and a practice that you can do daily or when you need it, even in your own home, to deal with stress reduction and anxiety reduction and trying to bring yourself a sense of mental and emotional and physical peace um, so you can release some of the trauma and the burden that's out there. So if somebody says, yeah, I, you know, I'm looking for something, but I'm not quite sure if I want to go talk to a counselor or I'm, I'm completely against medication or, you know, whatever it is, there are things like Project Welcome Home Troops that, that are out there that'll help teach you. They're, they're so simple, but they're very impactful. Um, and my buddy, Tom, that I walked with, he started his own thing. He went out became certified to teach, um, you know, the, the mindfulness and the meditation, but he also learned how to teach yoga. Um, so check him out. Oh, hi earth. O J A I earth. O J. Um, you can Google it. Yeah. So like, Oh, hi, like the city in California. Okay. Yep. Oh, hi earth. So like the city in California, he's out there doing that. That's what he's trying to do. Um, I also think too, it's tough for veterans to accept the fact that they need help because we've accomplished so much and we feel like we're pretty self-sufficient. If you've got, you know, a veteran loved one or a veteran family member that needs to speak to somebody, like try to seek out through a vet center or a VA, maybe a veteran led group, because sometimes we just want to tell people our stories in a non-judgmental way with people that have experienced what it is that we've dealt with. Um, so these are some things that I think would help, but then the community at large. So whether you're a veteran or non-veteran business or not, 
the biggest takeaway that I would have is this. When the drumbeat for war is beating louder and everybody starts to put into context the need to go to war and how much it's going to cost and how quickly we'll do it, et cetera, et cetera, we need to hold those decision makers accountable for things like how many doctors, how many nurses, how many psychiatrists, psychologists, nurse practitioners, peer mentors, et cetera, do we need to have in place? And will they be in place before the first you know, shot is fired? And if not, when will they be there? Because I think one of the greatest lessons learned was our generation of veterans, the Global War on Terror, OIF, OEF veteran, when we came home, those VAs and those caretaking kind of facilities were not set up to deal with the needs that we had. They were more still set up for World War II, Korea, Vietnam era veterans and kind of the needs of veterans of those ages. Um, not so much us. So I really, really, really believe that when discussions about war are happening, we've got to remember what the care kind of needs are going to be. And we need to demand that those things are in place because that's about, you know, more human loss. And like I said, people will come home and they will self-medicate. They will segregate, they will do these things. And then all of a sudden that toll might be exponentially greater um, with loss as a result. So that's really what I would do. I would say, encourage yourself to look at nonprofits and agencies that you believe in and align yourself with those things that interest you. Instead of donating your money, donate your time, find out how you can get involved. If you have a skill or a passion or an interest, I promise you, there are ways that you can find within your community a way to be able to provide support to those places. And the best thing that you can do is give your time because then you will see that mission through to the end. If you do not find something within your community, then do it. Then be that one, right? Then say, hey, and there's plenty of community boards, whether it's on Facebook or some other version of social media. Hey, I'm a veteran. I'm this guy. I have this skill. I'm this woman. I have this skill, you know, whatever it might be. I'm willing to offer my time and my support to somebody who might be doing this or need this. There are countless ways to do it as long as you can always remember that your ultimate goal is to just impact people, their lives. I mean, that is truly the bottom line. So that's what I would say the best way that you can get involved um, okay. in supporting veterans and their families would be. But for the listeners, Anthony, the ones that you mentioned, American Corporate Partners, well, um, yep. Project Welcome Home Troops. Welcome Home Troops and Ojai yep. Earth. Yep. Um, we'll make sure that those are in the show notes for the listeners. Yeah. And then you got, and then you got guys like me. Then you got guys like me who, who (laughs) are young, young veterans, you know, and young veteran entrepreneurs. And so, I um I started a business, Litbeard Company. So you can find me litbeardco.com. How do you spell? How do you spell that? L I T L I T Beard C O. So like litbeardco.com. Um. So Litbeard Company is a veteran-owned beard oil business. And so I do cool things like I hand make beard oil and then I wax dip every bottle. Like it's a bottle of bourbon, right? I hand make everything, beard oils, beard balms, all these sorts of things. And so that's great. But what I really do that I think has an enduring effect 
Um, not just on making your beard look good, smell good. Um, I donate a dollar from every one of my sales to Project Welcome Home Troops. I think that just because my service when I wear my uniform has ended, my service to fellow veterans and my communities and my country doesn't end. And so I take that entrepreneurial spirit and I try to do something that's a bit more altruistic. And so I let people know within the pillars of my business, you know, I'm veteran owned, wax dipped, you know, handmade. And then they align themselves with me, not only because they like what I do um, as far as the product, but they love the mission behind it. That it is super important to me that as a veteran owned business, we support veterans and their families. And that's why I donate a dollar from every sale to Project Welcome Home Troops. There are a lot of veterans out there that are entrepreneurs that have come home and they've started their own businesses, um, find those, those businesses and support them. Um, understand that there's a lot of us out there that had a lot of really good skills that we learned sometimes uh, like even in sports, the intangibles, there wasn't a lot that I could bring home from being in the infantry, but with respect to organization, leadership, planning, you know, kind of that drive that, that inherent thing within me that just keeps me going and doesn't let me quit. That serves me well um, as an entrepreneur. I mean, that's kind of one thing that you got to have. You cannot stop and you have to be self-reliant and you have to be adaptable and agile. Um, so there's a lot of us out there doing good. And those are ways that you can certainly help veterans and their families. Don't leave out your integrity, Anthony. What you're doing, like we <laughs> talked about in the beginning of the podcast, and even now you're you're walking the walk, you're talking the talk, you know, you're giving back to to the veterans through your business. So. Always. Amen, Very good Anthony, job. that was an amazing interview, dude. Um, there's so many golden nuggets, Johnny. I'm going to attempt to do just a quick summary yeah, of please. some of the things that we heard, but uh, holy Anthony, smokes. And my point about business leaders, contact Anthony, get ready. Uh, I don't think it's about <laughs> donations. I think it's about, you know, using your skill sets to help some to help some businesses with, uh, with your leadership skills. So here's some of my, I'm happy if talk about it. If you ever know, SKO, a sales kickoff, there's your man right there. No doubt. For real. I've done, I've done a lot of, um, public speaking, obviously. So if, if there's somebody that's like, Hey, we'd love to fly you out here and talk to our group and, you know, provide, you know, provide a measure of context or a measure of motivation or whatever. I'm certainly happy uh, to do that and talk to those people. You'd kill it. You You'd would kill absolutely it. kill it, <laughs> Anthony. Let That's me talk awesome. about yeah, some of those. Let me talk about some of those topics. We'll make sure we have all your contact deals in the show notes. There's no doubt in my mind, uh, folks are going to want to reach out for you for a myriad reasons. Uh, sure. Um, here's a few takeaways. Um, first of all, the service and the integrity. I'm just. I got chill bumps when I'm looking at these to your battle buddy when you took his spot, uh, how many people would actually do that? And then the second time around, the, the, the two or three or more of us go, we're all going, and then nobody goes, and you go anyways. Um, <laughs> it's, just, uh, it's just, it was amazing. You said you have to make decisions. You can't wait. In the context of what you were experienced, it, it really made you make decisions because they were, in fact, life or death in many cases. And, you also talked about communication with transparency is how I paraphrased it. Communication yep. with transparency 
which probably would alleviate some of the problems that you were experiencing with mission creep. So I'm talking to my leaders out there, my business leaders. There was a ton to take away from this podcast around uh, mission creep without purpose and purposeful work leads to resentment from the troops. And I thought, man, that just really, really resonated for me. Um, you talked about something really powerful. That one year has no peer. Uh, just because somebody looks like they're okay, they spent 20 years uh, you know, doing something in a community, and then they went one year away, and you said that one year has no peer, which led us into the conversation about the differences between PTSD versus moral injury. Um, but those were really fascinating. I loved seeing the story of the wolf walker, uh, but uh, the takeaway that you gave me was the responsibility of a community to take care of the soldiers before they go, when, when they're there, and when they come home and their families um, is really, uh, there's, no, there's no doubt in my mind why that became a major um, uh, turning point for you and the emphasis on the families. We talked about the different charities that, uh, that you, you highlighted, uh, American Corporate Partners, Project Welcome Home Troops is very near and dear to our hearts at Force Management. We're involved with them. We love what they do. Any veteran, anywhere, any place, anytime can go and, uh, and, and get that um, experience, that Project Welcome Home Troops experience. It's free for any veteran. There's no sense in suffering. It's free. So if you have family members out there that are suffering, introduce them to the folks at Project Welcome Home Troops. Contact Anthony. He knows the people at Project Welcome Home Troops. Yeah. Ojai Earth uh, is another one, but your main message was to, uh, to you know, donate your time as well as your money so you can really be prepared for understanding when there's a drumbeat of war, it's a lot more than just the, you know, the logistics costs of things of war. It's the total mm -hmm. costs, including coming home and, and thriving uh, for our soldiers and their families. Dude, you killed it. Oh, sorry. Litbeards. Litbeards.com. Litbeardco. Litbeardco.com. Litbeardco. And a dollar from every bottle goes yeah. to the vets. That's a no-brainer. Yeah. I just wanted to add two other things, especially for the business leaders that I – Pick up that are very pertinent to any business person is um, is where Anthony said, if you don't understand why you're doing what you're doing, then then what's the purpose? And there's many organizations where the the leaders haven't really given their people the purpose and, and, a, and a vision for what's going to happen and why they're doing what they're doing. And the second piece was in the chaos that Anthony talked about, you have to rely on your intuition. There's many situations in business and in sales where people just, they're in their head too much and they don't really, and haven't learned how to rely on their intuition and trust that gut. And that's what Anthony found out pretty quickly that he, that he had to do in a chaotic and chaos situation. So when I, when I started doing sales training, I always kind of looked at salespeople in this very negative light because I felt, I remember, uh, <laughs> I remember I said they're just manipulators with titles, but what I started to find was those that focused ethically and they started to pair uh, right product 
for the right reason, you know, like it's not about just getting this person to commit to this and it's an exchange and it's transactional. It was more relational. Like, I don't want to force this with you. I want to be able to show you the value and what this is going to do for you, uh, you know, for your life. This is interesting because when I was younger and I was, you know, deployed, it's, it's, it's your intuition, but it's also your training. And it's more like task execution. Like I have to do this and I have to do this. And this is how I go like muscle memory. You know, it's just like, this is what I, this is what I do. And so it becomes an unconscious thing, but ultimately like when you're dealing with people leadership, it can't be unconscious. It has to be very conscious and very purposeful. And you have to be able to connect the task because you may be asking somebody to sacrifice more than they would ever be willing to do in any other circumstance. And in business, it might be time away from their children or time away from their family. And if they're aligned with why you're doing what you're doing, they will give of themselves to do it because I think ultimately people are very mission and purpose oriented. But if they feel like they're just going out and they're sacrificing for nothing more than just like checking a box. No, that's ultimately what breeds resentment and gets people to think like, this isn't what I want to do. Right. That's why they attrit from many organizations. So, Indeed. Johnny, so you want to bring us home here? Yeah, so powerful. Anthony, I can't thank you enough, not only for your service, uh, for your service to others, for your service to the country, for your continued service to the families and the men and women who have served for serving our audience with just an outstanding, unique podcast. Uh, we couldn't, we couldn't thank you more. Thank you so very much. And Anthony, You're very welcome. And I have to tell you that it's very easy uh, to do this when both hosts have the same first name. So thanks for keeping it simple for <laughs> You're me welcome. Uh, as well. I appreciate that. Yeah. Anthony, thank you so much. We're very, very grateful to have you and, and thank you so much for all you do. I really appreciate it, man. Thank yeah, you're welcome, fellows. It was my pleasure. All right. And thank you for listening to Revenue Builders. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com. Thanks.